Lights, sirens, heroes. You're listening to the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. Okay, guys. So for today's interview, I have a very special guest on the podcast. I have a very good friend of mine. I am so honored to have Trina Bray on the podcast. Um, A big thing, obviously, I've got Trina uh, via FaceTime all the way from Houston, British Columbia. Now, you're going to ask yourself, where is Houston, British Columbia? All right, we're going to do a bit of a geography lesson because we are, this is the Unreasonable Grounds podcast, and this is something that goes from Newfoundland all the way across to British Columbia. So if we go Vancouver all the way, oh geez, all the way east, about two and a half hours, and then you're going to do a giant north shot north all the way up about, well, if you're doing the speed limit, about nine hours up to Prince George. And then you're going to say, hey, I've driven enough, or maybe I haven't driven enough today. I'm going to go left down Highway 16, the Highway of Tears, which sounds like just a bundle of fun. And I'm going to head all the way four hours west towards the ocean, but not that far, because that would be great if we got to the ocean. I'm going to get all the way out to Houston. That's a long way away, Trina. It is. It is a ridiculous far distance away from Vancouver, especially for a kid from Southern Ontario, growing up someplace where I thought an hour to Toronto was a day trip. But a big part of the, uh, the reason I have Trina on today is that Trina is a employee with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police out of Houston, BC. She's been doing the job for 20 years now. And that's a big number. I honestly, very first thing I want to say, Trina is congratulations on 20 years. Thank you. I honestly can't even imagine that number. Like it seems like yesterday. It's bonkers, isn't it? It is absolutely crazy. No, absolutely crazy. On top of that, we've had the opportunity to work together. So back in 2012, I had the opportunity to come out and transfer from the what I would call the East Coast, so Eastern Canada, all the way out to Houston. I got to live up in a little tiny community of Grand Isle, which is also a satellite detachment of Houston. And we had the opportunity to work together. Uh, You were the detachment clerk at Houston at that time, as you are now still. And uh, what an experience. I... You did a lot of learning in the years that you're here. <laughs> Absolutely. So a big part of the, uh, the relationship that I got to have with Trina was the fact that we laughed at a lot during our time in Houston. And I'm not really sure if it was from sleep deprivation, isolation, or just sheer silliness. But or all- absolutely or all of the above but we had a really good time and I think one of the biggest things was that uh and I I've been snipping out tiny little stuff uh little clips from other episodes onto my the Instagram account for the Unreasonable Grounds podcast and one of the things that I used to always do is eat horrible food when I was in Houston to the point that we actually wondered if you were going to survive physically (laughs) Literally, physically. There was a whole lot of 7-Eleven being eaten. (laughs) Yes, there was. I had no other choice. I'm going to be honest with you. With being an hour away from the home that I was living in at that time, I had no other choice. And when you're in a small community, it is what it is. Exactly. The yeah. choices are there. So, uh, Trina, thank you very, very much for coming on to the podcast and just bearing with me in this whole thing. We are still very new to podcasting, but I'm very excited to have you on. Um, one of the biggest things that we do, and it's something that Mike and I really love doing, is a special thing called Breaking Donut. So, I haven't had the opportunity to put too many clips on Instagram right now before we publish all the podcasts. But in this case, I gave you a call. <laughs> I left work at, I'm going to say about five o'clock tonight, and we're doing this uh, interview at about, you know, seven, seven thirty ish now. So I gave you what, 45 minutes? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Warning. I called up Trina and I literally said, Hey, Trina. And she's like, Yeah, what's going on? Always pleasant. I'm like, Something that we do, and I forgot to text you, is that we do breaking donut. I need you to find a donut. In a small little town with very few options. So what, what's the population of Houston? Oh, I think it's 
2,500, 3,000 maybe? 2,500 people. And <laughs> what do you think your options were for a place that even had anything close to a donut? <laughs> Who? <laughs> Two. If one I, didn't have it, I was going to go to the other one. <laughs> and, what, and what were your choices? 7-Eleven or <sighs> buy low foods. <laughs> so on that note, do you have the donut in which you have selected to be able to break donut today? I do. No, you didn't. What and you, you, will... you got it. You got oh. it because this is just audio recorded. <laughs> And I can't share the video because I'm not that technolo technologically savvy and you guys don't want to see my face on a, on a video. Trina, what do you have in your hand right now? I have a Long John from 7-Eleven. Due to COVID, they're each individually wrapped. So said Long John is plastered to the plastic. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how much of the chocolate coating is actually going to come off on the plastic, but we will see. <laughs> I am stunned right now. <laughs> I am stunned and I am absolutely blown away by the fact that you're able to go to 7-Eleven. And this is like my wildest <laughs> dreams right now. Cause I was like, you know what? Trina's not going to be able to find a donut in Houston and this whole thing is going to go sideways. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And I was like, but wait, what if she goes to 7-Eleven and finds a donut? Because I'm telling you, I ate a lot of those 7-Eleven donuts while I was there. See, and I figured it was so appropriate. I'm like, it's like going back to Mike's roots. <laughs> We're going back to the 7-Eleven donuts. Exactly. And it seemed fitting. I'm not sure if I just have like a mental block for that time period based on sugar and possible first stages of diabetes. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I'm blown away. That's awesome. We're also going to have a conversation about long johns anyways, because you have what you believe to be a long john in a bag. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's, it's a COVID. It was labeled Long John. <laughs> and again, 7-Eleven strikes again. They absolutely amaze me with the fact that it's not a Long John. It's just a long donut with chocolate on it. It's like, oh man, I'm I'm a donut connoisseur. And I'll tell you, it's just not traditional Long John. But I, I'm going to do this. I'm also going to show you. I also went over to, and I was much luckier. I went to Tim Hortons. <laughs> Of course you did. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I'm recording the podcast out of Parksville, BC. It's on Vancouver Island. But the thing is, I don't think, and I've only been living here for a few years, but I don't think we have a 7-Eleven here. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, I was very limited in my ability. I think maybe Qualicum oh. Beach has one. And I obviously know that Nanaimo has a couple. But as I was coming home, I'm like, you know what? That's it. I'm going to go stop by Tim Hortons. And I'll get one and we'll go. So, I'm going to do the <laughs> unveiling as well. You did your great unveil. I'm going to do my great unveil. And I love this because the audio sucks when I pass a donut bag past it. It just like crinkles. <laughs> and I already put it on Instagram, the photo of the donut that I have. Because I got all <laughs> excited. I'm like, oh man, I'm fired up. Okay. So Look. had I had like a day's notice, yep. I would have gone to Smithers and gone to Paul's Bakery and got the famous Cronut. Whoa, whoa, which... whoa. Oh yeah. The Cronut. The Cronut. Is it like the Cronut from like New York City, which was like the craze in the early 2000s Cronut? Yeah, yeah. So oh. it's it's a croissant, but they cut it like a donut and they cook it like a donut and it is heaven. I'm not sure as a donut lover how if I'm excited or upset. Oh, you it, it would be excitement. Is it yes. is it blasphemous to say that that's a donut because a donut is fried dough? But then, you know what? They, they get away with it because they don't call it a donut. They call it a cronut. So, I, yep. yeah, okay, fair enough. They go with the 50-50. That's fine. Yeah. We are going. Oh. No, no, no. This is weird. This is, I literally <laughs> went to Tim Hortons. And Tim Hortons has a tendency to go too fancy these days. Um, <laughs> so, I decided to go and get the, they call them specialty donuts. And they charge an extra, like, I want to say 40 cents for this thing. Oh. What, what, what kind of donut is that? You can tell me. What does that look like? Doesn't that, it kind of looks like an apple fritter, like, thing happening. It's a honey cruller. Oh. But it's just dipped in chocolate. Oh. So it's a cruller dip. Oh. 
so they had two ingredients and they decided to put two together and charge me an extra 40 cents. So well done, Tim Hortons. You got my money. Well, <laughs> well done. So yeah, yeah. here we go. We are going to try two donuts. You have a much higher risk threshold than I do with my donut today. If In you... all honesty, I was expecting to walk away with a muffin and be like, eh, good enough. Yeah, good enough. We're <laughs> going to do a muffin review. So but I our... found a donut. Okay, wait, wait. So does it feel like it actually has cream on the inside of it or is it just the outside was dipped in chocolate? Well, it's a 7-Eleven donut, so it's a little, it's a little lacking. <laughs> lacking is a good way to describe that. <laughs> it doesn't feel cream filled. It's, it's somewhat heavy for its size, but I don't know if that's cream or lack of quality. I'm going to say lack of quality, and then the weight <laughs> added is called a funny thing called preservative. Yeah, that I think you're right. Because let's face it, of all the wonderful things that they go and deep fry in a 7-Eleven, if you've ever been in the back of one of those. <laughs> See, here's the Police officers know what it's like in the back of a 7-Eleven, because what do you do when you go to a 7-Eleven when you're at work? you're probably getting surveillance footage from a 7-Eleven. So you go yep. back and you get to see the backside of those things. Yep. Some places... Which no one should ever see. Ever. Never. <laughs> but again, have been cleaner. So I say what we do is we get into these things and I want your 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 review of your donut. So let's do it. It's not the thing I've eaten. In a pinch, it would do. And we're talking about someone who lives in the wilderness. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, you live in the frozen tundra for the purposes of a kid that grew up in St. Catharines, Ontario, a city of 170,000 people an hour south of Toronto. So the fact that, the fact that you're calling it okay in a pinch, your pinch is a little bit different than the pinch I grew up with. I grew up with no fast food. The closest fast food when I was a kid was Prince George. So that was, yeah, a day's trip. So what you're so telling that, me is your expectations are so low. A little bit low. That's okay. <laughs> All right. So now we have the review. I think it, before you get sick from eating the 7-Eleven Long John, I want to thank you so much for being the first honorary guest to break donut on the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. How was it? That was good. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy to be the, the first one. It's an interesting experience, I can imagine. So hopefully we have others. Um, just don't die, because if you die, <laughs> I won't be able to get any more guests on here. It'd be a bit of a, a, bit of a curse. So to kind of get into it, um, the reason, again, and we talked about this earlier working up to the interview, is I wanted to get you on to be able to talk about the work that you do and the work that you've done for the last 20 years for not only just the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the RCMP, but also for the people in your community, because you provide an amazingly intricate and detailed service to the community. And I know when I had the opportunity to be able to ask you a few questions, and obviously I worked with you for two years, so I saw all the jobs that you did, but one of the biggest things that I was amazed with, because I was trying to write down, I'm like, what does Trina do? What does Trina do in the detachment on a day-to-day -day basis? And what I kept thinking, because we don't stop long enough to be able to sit there and watch and ask questions and whatever, what have you. But I kept thinking was, well, she's the detachment clerk. She does everything. How many, well, I, you know, in other larger detachments, we call them PSs, so public servants, or we have civilian members. So in this case, how many people work in the Nanaimo detachment outside of law enforcement? Like police officers, sworn police officers. Oh, you mean Houston detachment? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we now have 11 members. Um, so a sergeant, a corporal, and nine constables. Um, so during the amalgamation with the Grand Isle detachment, initially there was a part-time that worked in Grand Isle. We've since been able to pull that position down to Houston. So I now have, as of this February, a part-time who works with me. And so there's one and a half of us. <laughs> one and a half is better than just one. How many years did you go 
you know, obviously we had uh, individuals that we worked with as well that were going part-time while I was there and working the detachment and a few of the times that I had the opportunity to drop by after I'd left the detachment. But how many people, it, it was just you. Yep. So when I started, because um, I started as a casual, so there was one and a half of us in the detachment in Houston and then a part-time in Grand Isle. So there was technically, but they were completely separate. They were their own detachment. And so there's one and a half of us here. And then in 2016, they kind of changed how the casual system works. And so we couldn't have that casual position anymore. So it was me from 2016 until February of this year. It's absolutely insane the amount of work that you do. I mean, you know, I work in a larger detachment now that's a municipal detachment outside of a provincial place in comparison to what you work in. And when I asked you about what some of the jobs that you did, and I'm going to rattle off a bit of a list here. And for anybody in policing and especially working in a municipal detachment, you know that there's many, many faces for all these different jobs that take place. So some of the things that you sent me were you work as a call taker, you work as a CPIC coordinator, you work as a court liaison. And in some cases we have court liaison officers, right? You work and establish and keep control of records, disclosure, finance for the detachment. You're the unofficial, or actually I would say the official party planner. (laughs) Congratulations, you passed. I've been to a couple and they were fantastic. (laughs) And as well, like you said, the unofficial counselor for the detachment. And these, this this is absolutely incredible to see that one person can take on all these different positions. And you and I had this conversation earlier in that where the detachment that I work in now, in some of these cases, there are, you know, four, five, six people that work each one of these things. You know, yeah. our court liaison office locally, I mean, you're dealing with four or five people that do that job. I mean, obviously, it's a much busier place and the, the number of files are still there. But, you know, it, it's no more or less difficult. It's incredible the amount of work you did. And then the records. I spent a lot of time in that records room, probably causing you more work <laughs> to the point, I think, after about five or six times where I just started putting files back. So I'm like, I'll just help Trina. I'll put the files back. You're like, Mike, stop it. I have a basket up front. Just drop the files there, please. I remember that conversation. <laughs> and I think it happened a couple times because, again, it's a flurry of 7-Eleven donuts and coffees and all the rest of that going on the taquitos uh and disclosure and finance it's just absolutely ridiculous the amount of work that you do there and i don't think that you know people that are employed in those types of positions like yourself that work in small detachments get enough credit and recognition for the amount of work that you do and like i said earlier in the podcast in the interview i said you know the amount of work that you not only do for us you know, the members, the officers that work within the detachment, the detachment commander, the corporal, whoever the ops NCO is. But on top of that, the community as well. So, you know, I'll say this. I'll say thank you very much for doing everything that you do. I mean, obviously, I don't work there anymore, but I know the amount of work that goes into that place. So thank you so much for what you do, Trina. 20 years is is amazing. The fact that you've gone this long, keep doing the job, and it sounds like you just want to keep going. Thank you. I, you know, I went through a period where I was done. I was ready to walk away. Um, but I'm glad I didn't. I, there were some, some dark, dark days, but I'm, I'm glad I stuck it out. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that too, in that, you know, there's an impact, not only when it comes to, and, and trauma with police officers and first responders is a big deal these days. And it's something that, Um, we're now able to talk a lot more about. But we also don't realize that, you know, as much as there's trauma within the membership and within the officers themselves, there's a lot of that that's passed on to people that work around us and that work at the detachments, at the offices, uh, individuals such, as well as victim services, right? So I totally understand where you're coming from. And like I said, it's a, it's a conversation that I hope we can have a little bit more later. But I kind of wanted to get into how you got into this job. 
how does one wake up one morning, especially when they're growing up? Because um, again, you'll have to remind me how young you were when you got in. And because I'm guessing it was pretty early in your adult uh, working career, post high school and so on and so forth. But like, how does one wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to go work as a prison guard, you know, a jail guard, I guess you would say at the detachment level. And, and just how does that happen? How did that happen? So I kind of always had an interest in criminology and that sort of thing, like the, the crime drama and all that stuff. But for me, growing up in a small town, you have no idea what jobs you can do other than being a member or a lawyer. And all I knew is I didn't want to be either one of those. So I didn't know the other options available to me. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to pursue that. And then I'd gone away to college, kind of didn't really like what I was studying and ended up studying criminology, going back to that and kind of thinking, well, maybe there's something I can do with this. And then I had decided to become a probation officer and got some really good advice from somebody saying, I don't think that's a good idea. And truly, truly appreciate that advice now. Um, just this person was kind of like, hey, you know, the burnout rate is really high. So many people are on probation right now that are really, really tough clients. And so I was like, oh, crap. Now what do I do? And so I decided, well, I'm just, I'll keep studying and kind of figure out how to make this into a career somehow. And so I'd heard that they were looking for guards at the detachment. thought, well, you know, it's an inn. And maybe, you know, I can kind of figure out something from there of what to do. So I started that job. And then the next spring, I was approached by the sergeant saying, hey, you know, we really like your work. And we were wondering if you would fill in for our clerk when she's away in the summer. So I was like, young and naive and sure, let's do it. <laughs> and in looking back, thinking, I mean, I was 23 at the time young stupid had no idea that what I was getting myself into and just took it on and really really loved that work it's it felt like a job that I wanted to do and so the difficulty being there's not a lot of PS jobs in the north um so ended up being a casual for six years so I kind of floated I did some fill-in work in Smithers, went to Hazleton for eight or nine months, worked full-time there, came back to Houston. And in the meantime, there was the clerk who was there at the time, she moved. So there was a vacancy, but unfortunately the way that it works is someone who was already a PS in the lower mainland with the union was able to take that job. And so I was like, well, you know, now what do I do? So I had decided to become a paramedic and was a week away from starting my first aid course and got a call saying, hey, you passed all of the exams. Do you want the job here? So then I started full time and have been there since. That's incredible. When you think about the journey in which you've gone through to be able to get to the position that you're in, I mean, and it's funny because we worked together very closely for two years. And out of all the conversations that we've had, I, I'm absolutely shocked because I didn't know anything about the uh, paramedic training, you know, going towards a paramedic. The I think I do remember you speaking about wanting to do the probation officer gig. And obviously I knew that you'd worked in Hazleton because I was like, wow, you worked in Hazleton? <laughs> I have that reaction now too. <laughs> like, like, what was I thinking? Like, Hazleton? <laughs> really? Like, to, to the community of Hazleton, I say this. I mean, man, I, you know, driving to Prince Rupert and Terrace in those areas, you always drive through Hazleton. But I was like, it, it, it doesn't necessarily look like a rough spot. But man, it's isolated you know, on along Highway 16. And it just looks like one of those places where, you know, it's either one way or the other. It's either we're going to Terrace, we're going to Smithers, but I don't think we necessarily need to stop in Hazleton. You but planned ahead very much because you had to bring everything with you. And if you forgot something, you were either making the two hour trip to Smithers or, and it, 
the jurisdiction is so spread out, it makes it really difficult as well. And for a kid who was thrown in there who had no idea where all of these places were geographically, and it was tough. What a, what a learning experience and, and a challenge, right? To be able to challenge yourself. I mean, because even then, you know, when you look at Houston to Hazleton, what are we looking at? Two and a half hours? Maybe more? Hour and a half, hour, uh, hour and a half from Hazleton or from Houston to Hazleton. So yeah. even then, that distance for, you know, like you said, 23 years old, maybe a little bit older than that, and going out to Hazleton by yourself, taking on a position and a job out there. I mean, wow. You know, and then on top of that, you don't know the area. You know, you are, I guess, close enough distance that the, the, the pull to come back home must have been so great. You know, like, I don't know if I really need this. You know, like, do I need this challenge or whatever? But you, you stuck it through. So, I mean, you said you spent eight months in Hazleton, right? Yeah. And that's a it, well, kudos to you. You know, I always do the whole give yourself a pat in the back kind of thing. Like, wow, you made eight months in Hazleton. Well done. Like any of the members that say they lasted two to three to four years in Hazleton. I'm like, congratulations. Uh, well done. You did your job. But my biggest thing I'm kind of curious about, uh, Trina, is the prison guard. Because you went into guarding right away. as Like you said, kind of like a foot in the door. What was that like? Again, the 23-year-old kid who had no idea what she was getting herself into. It's, it was an eye-opener for sure. And the naive kid who had never dealt with drugs. I mean, going to parties, you're around drunk people. But not people who were so angry drunk. And that was definitely eye-opening for me. And it was an unpleasant job for the most part. It's you're getting screamed at, you're getting yelled at and seeing people at their worst was tough. That was really, really difficult for me. Yeah, I think, you know, it's something it's a reoccurring trend. And I've always had in my career in particular, especially and you would know the people that I dealt with as well, too, our guards that were in Houston, is that I enjoyed being able to go and have conversations with the guards. I'd always go in, I'd always sit down and talk with them. Some members have a tendency to kind of do their job, put their head down and just kind of like plow through the day. I definitely wanted to have the relationship with them and to go in and, and just have a conversation because that can be a lonely, lonely place for guards to be in that room. Very much so. Because as a member, when you're dealing with a person on the street and bringing them in, you're getting yelled at for, what, maybe 15 minutes, half an hour. Whereas when you're guarding and you're dealing with someone who's screaming at you for eight hours, your entire shift... And to have a member come back there and have a conversation with you made all the difference in the world because it kind of broke that cycle of abuse, really. Um, just the names that you would get called. And I've ha I had a couple people threaten me and it's, it's not pleasant. Yeah, because and... it's a different story because for us, you know, the, the the police officers in the city, I mean, whatever, you're going around. But guess what? When you're going around the city for the most part, I mean, especially me because I had to live up in Grand Isle, was that when I came into town, I had my uniform on. I had my use of force on and I was working. Whereas, you know, the members that were there as well living in Houston, yeah, they would do that for the most of the time, but they also have to live there. But you don't get that option. The prison guard or the, the jailer or whatever you want to call them, depending on your agency, they don't get to do that, but guess what? They see you, and when they're out walking around, they know who you are because, Trina, you, for yourself, you grew up in Houston. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For any of the time that you would have been a guard in Houston, you probably knew quite a few of the people that were in there, if not everybody. I was actually quite shocked at the number of people I didn't know because most of the people that we were dealing with weren't people who I associated with outside of in my personal life. And so I didn't really run into a lot of people that I knew, but when these people would become abusive, a lot of it was, I've seen your face. I know who you are. I'll, I'll find out who you are. And that was very intimidating, especially as a young female to have a male who's being very aggressive. Say that to you is frightening. It's scary. Yeah. You had to have, I can only imagine the, 
thick skin that you would have had to have done to be able to survive through that. Because again, in most cases, what we see, and, and I'm not sure, but usually it's a trend in policing, is that although the threats are made, um, then this is not a commentary on the condition of alcoholism or drug addiction or anything like that. But when the threat's made, it's usually the fact that, you know, the, the excuse is without going forward with criminal charges is that they were drunk, they were high, they made comments, but is it really that credible, the threat? And maybe, just maybe, it's a part of the job. Maybe we should suck it up. You know, but working in a large community, such as the one I'm in now, if somebody goes and threatens me, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I probably will never see this person again. But for an individual such as yourself, working in a small northern community, well, guess what? There is an excellent chance you're probably going to see them again. And if not, they might be your neighbor. Exactly. And that's the biggest thing is small town everybody knows where everybody lives and if you don't know where they live it doesn't take much investigation to find out where they live and so there was a couple of times when I drove home that I didn't go directly home I would kind of do a detour and make sure no one was following me it didn't happen often but there was a couple times for sure that that happened yeah, especially if you're working in a place like Hazleton, if you were doing the guarding up there or, or Smithers or whatever, if you were kind of moving from the different places, you know, very small communities. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, like I said, you got to have thick skin to be able to get through that type of experience. And I'm absolutely shocked. So how long did you spend doing the guarding before you ended up getting that transition into that part-time job? Or I should say the part-time detachment clerk position. So I guarded from 2001 until I started full-time in 2007. That is shocking. I had no idea how long that you spent guarding before you got the position in 2007. Yeah. Like that's a mind-boggling amount of time that I could only imagine. And the, the guards that I talk to on a daily basis, I'm shocked by the, the amount of time, like the hours. Like when you think about how much time and, and I've heard, you know, analogies and everything else. And people say like, yep, I did my 12 hour stint in the dungeon. <laughs> yeah, you did. It is a dungeon in some cases like Houston, you know, for example, it's all one floor. So it's not necessarily, but you still feel very, 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 I imagine claustrophobic in that it is a walled in space. If you can see a window, you're lucky. And like you said, you're getting yelled at, screamed at, and everything else. It must honestly feel like what it must feel like to be in London Tower, in the prison of old in London, England. You know, somebody out there rattling the cages and everything else for hours on hours. So I'm absolutely blown away. I had no idea it was that long. So there was no good. There were definitely there were definitely days where you felt like a prisoner yourself. That you couldn't tell what time it, whether it was day, whether it was night. And to be sitting at your guard station for sometimes upwards of 12, I think at one point in time, I'd put in a 16 hour shift because there was no one to relieve me. And to be not necessarily doing nothing, but when you're not physically active and mentally active, it's brutal. It's absolutely exhausting. And when you get to the point where you can't even read anymore because you've read the same sentence six times and it's still not making any sense whatsoever. And that person's just bang, 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 especially if we get the kickers. Oh, I used to oh. hate the kickers. The ones yep. that lay down on their back and just kick that steel door. And, and you know, they're going to get through it one day. They're going to get through it one day. You get those people. And I don't know how many times yeah. I went back and, and, and saw some of the people that you and I both know. Uh, obviously the guards that were there and a lot of them that you know in small communities and especially in Houston the average age was a lot older than what I think I anticipated when I showed up I was like you know what we'll probably have somebody that takes turns that was what I thought I'm like well because I wasn't around I grew up in a, in a larger city my my father was a police officer with a larger police force and they always had um, I guess it would be officers doing that job in cells and when I get there, I see, you know, the people that we know and, and uh, you know, they're older, probably in whatever, mid to late 60s, if not maybe a little bit older. And I'm looking at it going, they're wearing blue commissionaire shirts, but they're wearing blue jeans underneath and they're knitting. 
Yeah. And I'm like, how do they get through this? How do they take this kind of punishment? And I and was from, I was blown away. From having done that job, I can't imagine in my later years wanting to tolerate that abuse. That's as a young person, I could barely do that. I can't imagine being at that age and being like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Yeah, so some people are unfamiliar with the pra- the actual practice and the career itself and the job of being a uh, guard, especially in a small RCMP detachment, or it could be OPP, it could be Surat de Quebec, it could be a whole bunch of different agencies, whatever it might be in small communities. They don't realize that you didn't get any special training. You don't have any use of force. You probably don't have any uh, mechanisms in which to deal with that psychological punishment that you're taking on a day-to-day basis. And that was something that really fascinated me because we're asking individuals from the community to come in. Obviously, they're paid. If this was a volunteer job, I'd honestly say something was wrong with you. (laughs) Very much so. Would you like to come here and get yelled at and screamed at (laughs) and like basically tortured for the next 10 hours, (laughs) if not longer? But I was just blown away by it. And it was something that was an eye-opening experience to see. And the fact that you did this from the age of 23 till probably late 20s, if not 30. Uh, yeah, it would have been 29 when yeah, it stopped. 29 years old. That's still pretty young. That's about the time that yeah. I got to Houston. <laughs> and I thought I was like a 20-year-old kid showing up going, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in for a treat. This is going to be interesting. So the transition goes on. I'm kind of curious. Did you know very many people at the detachment before you got there? And obviously you grew up in the town and you said you you knew a few people, but were these people mentors for you to kind of get into that kind of work? Not at all. I knew of them, of course, it being a small town, um, but I didn't actually know any members or any staff before I started and yeah, I went in to apply and that was it. So I, I know that you'd said this earlier and we were kind of joking around about it, but it was literally like getting thrown in the deep end of a pool, right? Very much trial by fire. So I'm going to ask you this is kind of interesting. And I want your honest opinion on this because on the Unreasonable Grounds podcast, we're all about being honest. <laughs> and uh, I want your honest first impression of working with police officers, particular Mounties in Houston? I think going in, it was, you know, I was raised to have a tremendous amount of respect for the members and that sort of thing. And for me, the shock was, these are just people. They're, They're not special in any capacity other than, obviously, they have chosen a career that I don't think many people can even fathom, truly. But... For me, it was, it wasn't what I thought it, because I kind of put, you know, members on this pedestal of they do no wrong, you know, and that type of thing. So for me, that was, that was a bit of an eye opener for sure. So uh, where I would say this, because one of the biggest things that I find interesting about the RCMP is that we pull people in from all over Canada. And was there ever anything where you felt like, okay, I've got, I grew up here, I know these people, but then we tossed somebody in from the big city. Was there ever any experiences like that? I mean, obviously we're not going to name names and that, but was there ever any experiences where you're like, the big city kid comes in and like, was there anything like that? Oh, like so many examples. (laughs) Um, Right from the get-go, the member who didn't know the difference between a deer and a moose and didn't know the difference between the male species, male of the species and the females of the species. And for me, that was just like, how do you not know this? Wait a second. And Isn't just moose, just moose? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Mooses. <laughs> They're terrifying giant swamp donkeys that run in front of our cars and cause general mayhem on the streets and highways of Northern British Columbia. <laughs> Well, the best was I remember a certain member who transferred in from Ontario (laughs) who may have looked at me like I just grew a third ear out of my forehead 
when I told him to be careful driving to Grand Isle because there's lots of moose and bear. And he was like, those things are big. How can you not see them? How do you hit them? And then he learned very quickly. <laughs> Full, fair, and frank disclosure on this one. That moose walked out on me. And to paint a picture on a quick story... <laughs> I'm driving in and down from Grand Isle, which is kind of at an elevated elevation above a hilly area. We'll call it that. As I'm coming downhill, it's the middle of winter. We've got about three inches of ice on the highway, which is otherwise no affectionately known as the, was it the 118? Yep. The Grand Isle the Highway. Two, the two lane highway that soon becomes one lane because you're not quite sure where the shoulders are. There are no lanes. It is a giant skating <laughs> rink that successfully goes for about 45, 50 kilometers. And as I go down, I get into a deadlocked battle of chicken with a, well, I thought it was a male moose. And as I'm driving down the highway, I see this moose walking out into the highway and I'm like, oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> And this thing happened in slow motion as I approached the moose from about 400 meters away because they're giant animals. And I see it in the headlights. It's, a, you know, I'm going on the night shift. And as I go left into the far left of the single lane that is actually a two-lane highway, that moose looks at me and says, mm-mm, I got you made, like checkmate. So he walks out into the highway into the left lane. So I veer back in my giant suburban that I'd borrowed from the other member. And I go back and I start driving down the right lane, hoping that it would go away and continue on its way. No, didn't like that either. It clearly, it was attracted by my headlights. And as I do this three or four more times in 400 meters at a slow distance, I decided to gun it and I was going to make it past that moose. He wasn't getting me. It was basically a giant game of Red Rover or British Bulldog, if anybody played that game, where you kind of get into the shifty running at somebody to see if you can get past them. Yeah, I didn't get past. I smoked that moose right in the mouth, right on the windshield too. You think about how big a suburban truck is. So long story short, the moose walked away with missing teeth and a headache, and I had to stay on the side of the highway and wait for a PCMVI and officer to come out and deal with this accident. So yeah, full full disclosure, that was me and uh, one of the many incidents up there. But so working with other people from, from across Canada, what did you learn culturally? I guess it would be about individuals from you're you're from the West Coast, but how about from the East Coast? It's interesting to work with the newbies, just in that they have an approach that's so laid back. And it's something that I think that working with them has definitely helped me in that aspect. And then, of course, you know, you have the prairies who you have the farm kids who come in who are like, what do you mean you're going to call somebody to do that? I'll just do that. And so it's very interesting because very early on in your career, you meet these people from literally every corner of the country and it's quite amazing to learn about these places i, I feel like it's kind of humbling because we see it as well too because it's the people that we work with every day and, and we're kind of tossed into the salad of of you know their training academy where people come from all over and we have to just learn how to meld together and do the practices you brought up a very interesting point about our newfoundlander friends and you said that they're very calming in that. And one of the, I think one of the best things that I remember about working with Newfoundlanders and, and, and dealing, because there actually is quite a large community of Newfoundlanders in Houston. God bless them. And <laughs> I don't know, is it maybe mummers? <laughs> if you're from the, the East Coast, particularly Newfoundland, you'll understand the reference to mummers. But, you know... It, <laughs> well, I grew up with newbies I didn't so I think that we just take all of these things for granted that everyone in Canada knows what a mummer is and then when you discover no, that people no. have absolutely no idea it's actually quite shocking <laughs> what do you mean there's people out on was it Christmas it was Christmas wasn't it yeah. mummers is a Christmas just thing. after Christmas that's right so getting calls and thinking what do you mean that there's people running around with bed sheets over their heads and breaking into people's houses 
extorting them into giving them liquor in exchange to see if they can figure out who they are. The person is hiding underneath the sheet. So imagine, imagine being a kid from Southern Ontario trying to figure this out. I'm like, what kind of shenanigan is this? Here's Trina getting this text message going. What are these people up to? I'm like, oh, it's mummers. <laughs> As I'm flipping through the criminal code going, am I like investigating an offense here? Like, have they done anything? <laughs> and my infinite wisdom and experience with the criminal code at that time. But, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it kind of segues into it. Like, What is it like working with members on a day-to-day basis? What have you found out about I guess it would be members of the RCMP, but just working with police officers. I think the one thing that kind of surprised me initially was, and obviously now I understand it a little more, but just the type A personalities that you don't get the people who are kind of the followers in this job. And so dealing with a large group of people with that type of personality can be a little daunting initially, just in that, these are people who will, you know, take charge of things and maybe not things that you would want them to. And so it's it's kind of like, you know, out in the world, that's a great thing. But within your office, it's like, no, I don't need five people telling me what to do. Just stop. <laughs> like, I got this. <laughs> I, I can do this. And then the next person comes in and tries to do the exact same thing. <laughs> exactly change of shift the guy that worked all night long and hasn't in custody or something like that and you're like i'm just gonna go fingerprint and get the disclosure push through you're like i got this then the day shift guy comes in i'm just gonna do fingerprints and do the disclosure and push it through justin i got this don't worry exactly so that for me was initially a little bit of a challenge just in that you know I wasn't used to that kind of environment where there's a lot of the type A's. Yeah. So the type A personality I find in it very similar to the people that are very opinionated. Yes. They have, they have their opinions and they're going to stick with them. And one of the things that we have on the podcast is very much an opinion about food, <laughs> about our donuts, about our late night police food and, <laughs> and of the sort. So I'm kind of curious, Trita, has there ever been something that was just weird? Like a member brought in some food while you were at the office and you were like, what is going on? Oh. Because you've probably seen, like, it, because you've worked there for 20 years, you've been doing working with, you know, officers in the RCMP and this gamut of people that have come along. You must have seen a few, th- a few weird things when it comes to food and the choices of food that people have. And it goes back to the newbies. And I feel bad saying it but it's the newbie stuff that is like oh whoa like the vienna sausage thing and the the little cans of basically little hot dogs in a can with like liquid and it's apparently a delicacy in newfoundland wieners in a can are a delicacy yeah like i i can't even I can't do it. <laughs> just can't. <laughs> I'm going to say this right now. People, you know, when the podcasts are published in that and we start getting this out a little bit more, somebody from Newfoundland and <laughs> is going to have to explain this one to me. And I'm trying to think that's B-Div. That's, that's Bravo Division in the RCMP. Someone's going to have to explain the mini wieners in a can thing to me. Because, I, you know, you got it right. You nailed it right on the head. I, there has been situations where I've seen the same. Now, we were talking recently, uh, Mike and I, my co-host, we were talking about food that you can eat inside of a PC. (laughs) We'll call it travel food or late night food. And I can only imagine walking up to one of the PCs parked in a police cruiser for anybody or police vehicle that are unfamiliar with it. And they'd walk up to it in the back parking lot and you just like look over and you kind of wave to the person (laughs) sitting there because, you know, working in a small detachment, you didn't often run into another person unless they were working with you. It was always two people working and that's it. But you look over there and I, you know, I can remember somebody (laughs) cracking a can of wieners and I'm like, that's not right. I'm going to 7-Eleven. I've got my six taquitos all wrapped up in my pocket of wonderfulness. And... 
I'm looking at somebody getting on with some wieners there. <laughs> I, I never, I never really understood it. So yeah, that that is a weird one. <laughs> we had one guy who several years ago, and he, as he was working, would eat the chicken wings, and it was like someone would always find chicken wing bones without fail. And it would be like, stop eating the chicken wings. And you know what the chicken wings was? That's probably 7-Eleven chicken wings. <laughs> that was actually before 7-Eleven. No, it might've been 7-Eleven chicken wings, maybe. Because I, I had the same kind of deal with, uh, you know, a couple of people that you and I both worked with, that that was a chicken wing thing. It was literally <laughs> a stop by the 7-Eleven to buy a 7-Eleven pizza. Now, again, for anybody that's going to get a hold of this podcast, this episode, you'll know that the episode before this one, we talked a little bit about the 25 worst foods in the hot tray at 7-Eleven. And I kind of got into a tiny little story about the fact how amazed I was, and you'll be able to relate to this, the fact that on a Friday or Saturday night, the bars would let out... Sorry, let me rephrase that. The bar. Bar. <laughs> Singular. The Idlewild would let out. Anybody has been through Houston will know the Idlewild. And the Wild Wild would let out. And then you would see a column. And I will call it an organized column of between 10 to 12 people who have put in their order at 7-Eleven for a pizza. 7-Eleven pizza. <laughs> and the fact that they were salivating waiting for this thing to come out of whatever mini freezer oven this thing was going to come out of was just shocking i was blown away by it but i was always stunned by that it, it's a bit of a rite of passage here for sure <laughs> but that's the thing the members would go and do the exact same thing it'd be like it would be three in the morning we'd go over to see uh delgeed over at 7-eleven <laughs> My good friend Del Gito, I miss her so much. And we'd go over there and we would get the, we, I, oh, I, I didn't, but I was with the person driving around for the sake of trying to starve off boredom, to stave off boredom. Uh, and we'd ended up picking up pizza. Like it's just, it's unnecessary. I don't even call that food. It's not pizza. No. It's cardboard with cheese on it. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, it's so funny that, you, again, like you said, the whole food issue. I mean, was there ever anything else? Like, obviously, we got the wieners. Was there anything else that was just, like, completely bizarre and foreign to you that you were like, that's, don't think that's right? I think the big thing is a lot of the members eat a lot of protein, which results in a lot of gaseous issues. I will say unfortunate <laughs> episodes in the detachment. Yes. See, now we're starting to get into the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. <laughs> now we're starting to get into it. This is the poor life of Trina inside the Houston Detachment, a very small office. <laughs> Near, unfortunately, two of the washrooms, the only actual washrooms. We didn't have change rooms, people. We had two washrooms. And they were, if you took a yardstick, you would hit one of them from your seated position. Yep. At the detachment, and the other one was not a far cry away. Let's put it that way. And they have huge vents in the bottom of the doors. So it's like there are no secrets in those bathrooms. There are no secrets. <laughs> absolutely no secrets. That See, that is, that's a quote of the day. There's absolutely no secrets inside of a, a small detachment. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Thankfully, my desk has now moved into what used to be the GD pit. So I have a door that I can close and lock out the rest of that world. <laughs> Only now they decided to make the right move, which was to move the members <laughs> out of that tiny little pocket of death, which was which was the members GD pit. <laughs> Wonderful. So now I have not only do I have a door, but I have, you know, the essential oil diffuser going and we've made it homey. <laughs> you have trinified the Houston attachment. And you are well within your right to be able to do that. Exactly. You have earned the ability to throw on your diffuser and have some nice chai tea and hang out. Well, the number of people who've come in who have either 
either our property management people or WSI who come in. They're like, good for you. (laughs) You have a window. You have a door. Good for you. It's about time. It's been a long time. You deserve this. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I no longer have to listen to the bathrooms of mystery. (laughs) Is that what we're calling it? The bathrooms of mystery? (laughs) There's a vent in the door <laughs> what i don't know how they came up with that idea it's like that that was a smart that was a smart decision when they built that detachment let me tell you that was a that was a smart oh, move well exactly. to get away from the washrooms you know <laughs> and i've kept you a long time on the interview and i get asked you a million and a half questions the biggest thing that i would honestly like to ask you is that what's one of the things that people don't realize about the job that you do at the detachment. Now, you know, in the RCMP, we have, I would say, a environment in which to progress within the organization, we have to be kind of a me, me, me. You have to, you know, you're talking about people that serve the Canadian public. But to be able to advance throughout certain positions and, and to be able to get into certain units and further your career, you have to be able to sell yourself. But what would, what would you say the one thing that people don't realize about your job? And this is a chance that I know it's hard for us to be able to say, like, I do this and I do that and I'm amazing. But I'm just curious what you think the misconception is between the public of what you do. I think the biggest thing is a lot of people I speak with from the public only want to speak with a member. They don't want to speak with the secretary is what I've gotten a lot over the years. And it's like... I, they obviously don't realize because they're, they don't have the knowledge of the system, but I deal with every file that goes through that office. I'm the one who locks down a file so that only certain people can see it. And so for me, it's like, I'm going to see your information one way or another. And so there are no secrets in terms of, I'm going to see your file. Like it just happens. And so that's probably the one thing that I get most from the public is I don't want to tell you. Okay, but if I'm going to help you, I need to know what's going on. And so that's been probably the biggest thing for me is to try to battle that misconception with people of, okay, I'm trying to help you, but I need to know what to do to help you. Do you need to speak with a constable? Maybe you need to speak with a corporal or the sergeant. Like, if it's something really serious, then, you know, we kind of need more people in on this. And so... That for me is the biggest frustration. Or maybe you can deal with it right there and it could be done. It's not necessarily a call, right? It's not necessarily a dispatched occurrence in which some member has to take the time to go and deal with it. Or people who will call and ask to speak with a member about a criminal record check. And it's like, they don't have a clue. (laughs) Like They're bouncing them straight back to me anyways. I have no clue. And I think that was the biggest thing when I was there is that people would do the same thing. I would walk in from the back of the office after doing patrol or returning with a prisoner or whatever it might have been. And the same thing, you're right. People would come and ask like, oh, hey, I need to do a criminal record check. And that was one of those things where I'd look around and go, I don't know. Really, that's not really something that I'm trained to do. And I know the process is for you to go in and talk to Trina to be able to get the job done, I'm not sure why we're having this conversation because I'm pretty sure you went in there and you probably walked out already because you didn't get the answer you were looking for or you didn't get the helping hand that you wanted. So yeah, oh for sure, I totally get that. And then I'm, I'm curious what you think that the public should know about the people that you work with every single day, the officers that are out there on the road. The hardest part for me is this perception that members aren't people that members don't have feelings that members don't process information the same way that anyone else does and for me it's so painful to watch something on the news where people are screaming in a member's face for no reason other than they're wearing the uniform and that for me is excruciating because that person who happens to be a member now has to carry that with them. And as much as we say, Oh, we shrug it off. We shrug it off. Being screamed at for nothing that you can control is difficult. 
and takes a toll. So basically, one of the biggest things that I wanted to ask, and before we, we cap everything off, and I'm not sure if you have any of the donut left, we could probably outro, you know, <laughs> conclude it with some more donut. <laughs> but as somebody that's been doing this for 20 years, working as an employee with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, working as an employee with the detachments in Northwestern British Columbia, one of the biggest things that I think is that we fail, or if not fail, that we can improve on is our ability to recruit people into the field and how well we set them up to be able to get into this field and get into the work. Now, when we look at it within the RCMP and other agencies, and I've had conversations with other people from other organizations, and they say the same thing. We pay a lot of attention to recruiting and developing police officers. But what we don't do is we don't spend enough time recruiting and developing those in the support services. So on that thought, I'm curious to hear your opinion and your thoughts on this. What do you think, in your opinion, and what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is looking to get into that particular field of assisting with in a detachment clerk position, assisting with getting into a support services position within the RCMP, and, and whether it be RCMP, because we're talking about all across Canada, any organization. How, how, what, do you, what do you think that people should be doing? What do you think or the best piece of advice you can give to them? Oh, I think, and having trained and had multiple casuals in and out throughout the past 20 years is I think the general public doesn't realize how difficult the job is. Not only just in the sense that you're dealing with some really terrible things. Nobody calls the police because they're having a great day and just want to share that information. And so you're dealing with really terrible, terrible things. But at the same time, there's such a huge amount of pressure within the job. There's constantly changing priorities in terms of, holy crap, this huge file just came in. So everything else that I was doing gets pushed to the side. But yet I still have to get that done. And the analogy that I used actually last week was it's like trying to juggle a dozen eggs and you're doing not too bad, but suddenly somebody throws an orange at you and it's like, Oh, Holy crap. And you kind of drop a couple of the eggs, but it's like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll deal with that later. And then kind of getting into your groove. And then somebody throws a watermelon at you and it's like, everything goes out the window and not many people can handle that. Not many people can self-prioritize, okay, this needs to be done, but this needs to be done, but now this other thing comes in. And so I think that the organization needs to somehow, and I don't even know if it's within the recruiting structure that they do, or I think there needs to be more of kind of an information session like they have for members, where you sit down and you explain, okay, this is kind of the overview of what happens. Whereas within the PS world, all you get is you see this posting go up and it's like, oh, that job kind of looks interesting. And you apply for it and you go through all of the testing and boom, you're hired. But you still might not have any clue what you're, you're trying to take on. And I, I've actually dealt with that with a couple of people when we posted the part-time job. Of They called and said, well, what do you do? How do I explain in a conversation what I do? Like it's... I do so much that how do, how do I even begin? And so the general public really has no idea what they're even applying for. Yeah. And I think if anybody catches this podcast and they listen to our interview today, I think they have a better idea of kind of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Now we haven't delved into any of the particulars and everything else, but I think the complexity of trying to, like you said, time management, and organizing and collating these eight or nine or a dozen different particular jobs into one day's work and then organizing yourself for the next two weeks. And like you said, and sometimes maybe you get an individual who might throw a watermelon at you that might be a nine and a half hour statement. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll say, I'm sorry for doing that. <laughs> But on that note, 
I'm going to say this is number one, I appreciate everything that you do. I've run into, I don't know how many number of people when I used to work there, they, everybody had nothing but amazing things to say about the work that you do at the detachment, about the person that you are. The members have had such amazing experiences because of the work that you do and because of the relationships and the conversations that you have with the members. I will say this and that you are the, and I've had, and I thought about this, it's not the unofficial face of the RCMP. You are the face of the RCMP, the never changing face of the RCMP in Houston, BC. And I think that that is an extraordinary feat. And I just want to say thank you very much for the service that you've provided for the last 20 years. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So on that note, I thank you very much for coming on the podcast and dealing with all of our technical issues, as well as God taking down that 7-Eleven donut. I'm going to ask you to do it again. Let, let's, let's, let's break donut again. We'll walk out to that. The best part was the scavenger hunt to find said donut. <laughs> Which was epic. <laughs> you are officially the first guest of the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. Trina, I thank you so much for coming out. <laughs> thank you for calling me. Thank you for setting up this whole thing and getting on here. And I wish you all the best of luck in the future. Thank you. And you as well. Lights, sirens, heroes, you're listening to the Unreasonable Grounds Podcast.